Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. I have never preached through Romans before. This is my first time to preach through Romans. There are several books of the Bible that I have preached through before, um, and some of them several times. I've preached through the book of Ephesians several times. I've preached through Genesis once, um, Ecclesiastes once, um, and usually I'll go back and forth kind of from Old Testament to New Testament, as many of you are aware. Um, But I've never preached through Romans. It's just... I've been in ministry for 20 years and I've never preached through the book of Romans. I've, I've gone to it and preached different passages but never through the whole book. And so um, I hope that as we, as we work together through Romans, I hope that God just blesses your heart and, and grows you deeper in your faith. And I hope that he shows you things um, about who you are in Christ and, and all that God has for you. Um, but the first part of Romans... Uh, especially the first few chapters as we talk about the gospel and how everybody needs the gospel. Chapters 2 and 3 can, can get really theological and really deep. And there's some things that we have to grapple with as Christians to really understand, especially when Paul is writing to, uh, to, Roman, to, to Romans during this time and he's addressing both Gentiles and Jews. And he spends some time camping out in chapter 2 and 3 uh, specifically talking to a Jewish audience, to those who who would maybe have the temptation to put their faith and their trust in some of the Jewish uh, customs. Though they would come out of Judaism and become Christians, they would bring over some of these customs with them um, that were good. They were things that God gave to Israel as signs of his covenant, um, and as things as, that they were to remember, memorialize. And however, what, what we notice when we get into Romans chapter 2 is not something that's foreign to us as Christians even. Because we're human. And that is, we looked at last week, this idea of, of why the gospel, uh, why people who are chosen need the gospel. And in, in, in a way, Israel was chosen by God to represent him to the world and to be a light into the nations and to... Um, to go into the promised land that he gave to them and to reflect his holiness to a watching world. And in the very same way, he's chosen the church to do that today. As a matter of fact, Peter says in his epistle, in his letter, he says, you, talking to the church, are a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, okay, um, who are to walk in the light and in holiness. And so we're going to see some similarities and, and I hope that you receive a message from God's word today that applies to you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, and if you're not a believer, whether you're watching this online, you're part of Grace Fellowship Church, or you're here in person, I hope that today's message resonates with you and above everything else, causes you and reinforces in you a, a deeper dependence upon Christ in your walk. 
that you would depend more upon a personal relationship like the song that we just sang, Knowing Him, that that would become more real for you in your Christianity. Um, and so let's dive right in. Really, the question that we're looking at uh, today is going to come from a large passage. We're going to start in verse 24 from last week where we left off, but we're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, simply because what he introduces in the first part of chapter 3 really goes along with the tail end of, of chapter 2. And that is these four characteristics we're going to notice in this passage today. Four characteristics of a saving faith. When we talk about people of faith, there are people all around the world that might say, if we were to ask them, hey, are you a person of faith? And they would say, well, yeah, I'm a person of faith. What kind of faith? It might be, they might say, I'm, I'm of the Christian faith, or I'm of the Hindu faith, or I'm of the Buddhist faith. Or people here in Maricopa might say, I'm from the Mormon faith. I'm from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Others might say, I'm of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic faith. So even when we look at what some would consider themselves as part of the greater Christian, whether they are or not, consider themselves part of the greater Christian fellowship, we really have to define what it means to be a person of faith. And what is the difference between being a person of faith, generally, and having saving faith? You know, James talks about that as well in his, in his letter. He talks about a faith that saves you. And he says a faith that just talks the talk and doesn't walk the walk is not a saving faith. Saving faith is one that has specific characteristics. And so I hope that today you are your faith is reinforced by these things, but I know also that you might, you might be here, you might be watching or listening to this on the podcast later on, and you, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't recognize those characteristics. I hope that that realization drives you to the foot of the cross, that you may experience Christ and experience these things as your life is changed by the power of Christ. So, Four characteristics of a saving faith. We're going to start in verse 24. Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he's writing to, his, to a Jewish audience here in this particular part of Romans. He's talking to the Jews. Verse 25, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not the one who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? 
If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Would you bow with me just as we, as we pray this morning? Father, we know that every time we come together as your body, as we open up your word, that you um, are alive and well in our midst and your Holy Spirit's moving. God, would you move upon our hearts again today? Sometimes we come to passages that are very difficult to understand. We need your light. We need you to show us your truth today. Help us to understand it. And Lord, give your word success in our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we notice from the text, the first characteristic is that other people will see Jesus in you and in me. Other people will recognize a change in your life and in my life. Now, this was not true for at least some of Paul's audience here in Romans. When he, when he says in verse 24, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's not saying to, to the Jews, he's not saying be, because, because you represent God or because they know God from your testimony or because you have the law. He's saying... The nations blaspheme the name of God because of your behavior. Because they don't see that your lives have been transformed by God's choosing you to be a light under the nations. That's the problem. That's, that's where things stop short. With this type of election. Israel was elect. They were chosen. But they weren't chosen. They weren't chosen unto salvation. Like people are through Christ. They were chosen for God's purpose, to do the will of God and to reflect the holiness of God to the watching world. But people did not see the work of Christ fleshed out in the life of the Jews. And so when these Jews were becoming Christians and they were bringing their practices into the church and they were trying to convince Gentiles that they also, that Gentile men also, upon believing on Christ, they needed to be circumcised as well. Try selling that one. Okay? But they did. They said, look, this is a sign of what it means to be part of the covenant community of God. You must be circumcised. You must observe these rites and rituals and things that we remember God's deliverance from the times of old. So we'll celebrate the Passover still. We'll still do these things and maybe even observe these ceremonial cleanliness and uncleanliness uh, types of laws. But Paul says, look, you're, 
Your problem is, is not your name. It's not your election. The problem is something that's inside. And what's being fleshed out in the world is people don't recognize you as God's people. Not in the way that they should. He says that the word of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. You know, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations today as well because of the behavior of people who are who identify as part of the church community and who have for many, many years. God's name is not high and lifted up the way that it should be. The way that it will be, as the Bible says, when Jesus comes again and we all gather together in heaven where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we will sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But now we live in a time where people who identify with the greater community called the church, whether it's the local church or it's the church universal, there are people within our midst who the world doesn't see Jesus in us. But with those who are true believers and truly transformed by the gospel, others will see Jesus in you. They will see something different in your life. Because being born again and being a Christian is not just adhering to a certain theology, a set of beliefs about who God is and who Jesus is and how to be saved. It's a personal experience with the living God through the blood of Jesus and it changes your life. It will change your life. This is how we know we're truly saved because a change has been wrought in our hearts. He goes on to talk about circumcision. And it's not that circumcision is, is useless. He's saying this was a sign of God's covenant people. He says, but wait a minute. What if someone who's not part of the Jewish community who hasn't received the physical sign of circumcision, what, is, what if they live their life in such a way to where they live, more, they live a, a morally and more ethically pure life than you do even though you've received the sign of part of the covenant community but you don't live like you're part of the covenant community? What then? He says, well then, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision and their uncircumcision becomes circumcision. They look more like a member of the community than you do. Wow, what a, what a crazy thing to think about. It's not just about the outward signs of belonging to the community of Christ today in the church. It's not just about being able to point to a time in my past where I was baptized. What an awesome day that was. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the moment that I gave my life to Christ. I, I remember exactly what happened that day. I remember God broke my heart. For the very first time in my life, I got a picture of the cross. It was like I was there. And I was there. He was thinking about me when he was there. I remember that moment. And it was a life-changing moment. But when I think about who I am in Christ, I, I don't just think about the day when I entered into the baptistry and I was baptized and I have my certificate and, you know, that's where... It's not the outward, it's the inward change. 
is you can pass through the baptistry, you can make a profession of faith, you can identify with the church as a whole, but there's a change that has to be made in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit that actually pours out into our, our relationship with our spouse, our children, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, all those different personal relationships. It has to come out and people have to see Jesus in us. The second thing that we notice is a heart change. Our hearts undergo a great change. Listen to what he says in verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one, what? Inwardly. Inwardly. Now this is going to provoke some questions on the part of his Jewish readers. And he anticipates those and he, he does this. I, this is one of the things I love about Paul. He anticipates what we're going to ask and he asks it for us. And then he answers it for us by saying, may it never be. But notice where it all starts in verse 28 and 29. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart. It's of the heart. The way that we know is that our hearts have been changed. We have an assurance of our salvation because of the change in our heart that God has made. It's something that is inward. Now, by saying inward, we don't mean subjective. The Bible doesn't mean that because it's an inward change, then it's a subjective experience. And that means that, that you have some kind of subjective experience with God's mystical thing, over, maybe overly mystical thing, that doesn't line up with what Scripture says is an experience with God through Christ. I remember one time, I, there was a uh, middle-aged gentleman in my church, first church, and he and his wife came from a Catholic background. And... They liked our church and they wanted to join our church. And so one of the first steps was I was going to sit down with him and talk to him about his salvation experience. And um, I asked them, you know, did they know the Lord? Tell me about their, you know, salvation experience. Tell me, tell me who Jesus is to you, you know. And he told me this story of when he was a teenager he said he was, he was on a motorbike, like a dirt bike, and he went over this hill, and when he was in midair, he looked down at the ground, and he saw Jesus with blood on his forehead. I said, okay. And, and that was it. Like, that was it. And it didn't really ask me, it didn't really answer my question as to your experience with Jesus. Do you, like, in God's word, like who God's word says that Jesus says, what is your experience with Christ? Like, that was it. And I didn't know how, to, how he wanted to interpret that. Like, what did that mean to him, right? When we talk about a personal relationship with Christ and there's a heart change, it's with who Jesus is in God's word, like who God says that he is, that he's his son who went and died on the cross and died in your place and took all of his sin upon himself. And do you believe that? Have you received that into your heart? Have you surrendered all of you to him? 
It's, a, it's an objective thing. It has meaning. It has significance. It's not just a subjective thing. But it is also something that's not this theologically rigid set of bullet points to believe or to adopt. It has to be personal. It has to be a personal experience. I love what A.W. Tozer once wrote. He said, you can be as straight as a gun barrel, theologically, and as empty as one spiritually. Paul would not argue with his Jewish readers that they knew all of the ins and outs of the law of God. And that they were probably really good culture warriors in the way that many Christians are today, culture warriors. We can see things in culture and we can see it and point at it and say, that's wrong. That is against the nature of God. Some people vote purely on those types of abilities to point at certain issues that a certain political party supports and say, no, that's wrong end of discussion, I know it's wrong, period. And that's true. Many of those things are wrong. But we can also, in America during our time, become the type of cultural Christian that can do that and point at all these rights and wrongs and yet not have an inward change of heart ourselves. So Paul warns them. He tells them, I'm one of you. <laughs> Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. But this is not what it means. This is not what it means to have salvation. This is not a saving faith. It's a faith. It's a good faith. It's an effective faith faith it's a good community to belong to but this is not saving faith unless your heart has been changed thirdly saving faith is one where the spirit convicts me of my sin and convicts you of your sin he says verse 29 again he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There is a saying um, back where I come from, when you talk about someone who is a good person, if they are male and a good person, we call him a good old boy. A good old boy. They'd be talking about somebody and say, you remember so-and-so from way back when? Oh yeah, he's a good old boy. Or he's a good old boy. He's a good old boy, you know. That means they're a pretty good person. You know, I'd, I'd trust them, you know. Paul says in verse 29 that those who have saving faith, their praise is not from other people. Necessarily. They might have a good reputation and 
the word of God is not blasphemed among the nations because of them. But the true saving faith is faith that's actually is praised by God. So when we're in Christ, when, when God sees us, He shows us favor because of Christ in us and Christ for us. And this is a work not of the letter of the law but by the Spirit. And the Spirit is at work in a believer. The Spirit is constantly working and convicting us of our sin. Sin is not something that we're comfortable with. It becomes the very thing that we hate. It creates a self-loathing in the Christian. So that we're no longer someone who tries to justify our actions before God over and over and over again and among other people. But we are quick to forgive. We are quick to confess. And we're always aware of our sinfulness because the Spirit is at work in us. And He's constantly showing you and me our need for Christ. Thomas Brooks once wrote, Sin may rebel in a Christian, but will never dwell in a Christian. Sin may rebel in a Christian, but never dwell in a Christian. John Blanchard said, The lost leap into sin and love it. The saved chase, or I'm sorry, the, the saved lapse into sin and loathe it. Spirit convicts me of my sin, convicts you of your sin. And then finally, <clears throat> full submission to God's authority, God's sovereignty over your life. The next passage is really interesting to me because there's this type of self-justification that goes on and on. I, I don't know if you've ever done that. Try to justify, you know, your actions before God in the past, maybe. <laughs> he anticipates this question. If, if uncircumcision, if, if my circumcision as a Jew is like uncircumcision because I, I'm not living ethically, I don't have a change of heart, I'm not operating by the Spirit, by the letter of the law, what's the point? What's the advantage of being part of this community that's been called out? What's the advantage? Because he talks about value earlier in verse 25. Circumcision is of value if you do these things, if this change has happened. And so the question is, chapter 3, verse 1, so if all these things are not the case, then what is the advantage? What is the benefit? What is the value of being chosen as part of this community? What is the benefit of circumcision? Paul says, verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is that God chose you and the nation you belong to among all the other nations of the world to represent him to everyone else. What a privilege to be chosen by God as an instrument in God's hand for his glory. Wouldn't you be pleased to do that? 
No, the sinful heart doesn't care about that. The sinful heart wants to know what's in it for me. What's in it for us? Who wants to be used by God for his glory? I want to be used by God for my benefit. That's what Paul is anticipating here. He's saying, great in every respect. But many are not going to agree with him that it's great. Verse 3, he said, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? You know what he's saying in verse 3? He's anticipating this, this pushback. That they would say, wait a minute. Then God maybe wasn't successful in his election of Israel. If he chose Israel to reflect his holiness to the nations and to be his people, and many of them sinned and were idolatrous and did all these things that God told them not to do and broke his law, then did his election, that is his decree, his calling, his word, did that fail? Was he unfaithful? And then he says, may it never be, verse 4. And now he gets into he gets into some really juicy theology. Because he says in verse 4, may it never be, rather, remember, we're talking about God, okay? We're talking about the one who created everything that we see. We're talking about the one who is morally perfect, sinless. The unmoved mover, the one who doesn't depend upon anybody else. The one who can sovereignly do whatever he wants to do. Because it's all his. So Paul says in verse 4, Rather, let God be found true. He's necessarily true. Paul's speaking in philosophical terms. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. He's saying, look, remember, we're talking about God here. He's perfect. He's holy. His word never fails. He never changes. And then we get to verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Now what he's talking about is something that Man, I, I want to come out from behind here, but I'm on camera. That's one of the things. I, I love you guys online, but I want to move around, especially when I get into passages like this. I want to start throwing stuff and, you know, breathing heavy and spitting. And I can't do that anyway. Many, many years ago, a theologian by the name of Augustine, when he was trying to speak in a way about God that philosophers could understand to and the church to talk about who God is and how it is that there can be, this is called the, the problem of evil or the problem of pain. If God is good and he's all-powerful, if he's all-good and all-powerful, how is it that the world has evil in it? How's that possible? Because if evil exists and he's able to do anything, he can remove the evil if he wanted to, and he's good, well, wouldn't he do that? And Augustine started talking about the, how to understand that and, and how we understand evil. How can evil be in the world? How is it possible that evil exists in a world where there's an all-loving and all-powerful God? And Augustine explained it like this. 
When we talk about God, we're talking about the incorruptible, the perfect, the supreme good. Everything he creates, that is every creature, everything, is good, but it's not supremely good. It's just good. We can go back to Genesis 1 and see, that's true. God created everything and called it what? Good. But when evil entered into the world, something happened. The good started to, that is the, the incorruptible, started to become what? Corrupted. It started to break down. Remember what Jesus said? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. Here, moth and rust destroys, thieves break in and steal. Augustine would, would define evil as the privation of good. He was saying, think of, think of evil this way. He said, when we go to scripture, and he's literally talking about this passage in Romans. And he's pointing back to the way that the Apostle Paul described good and evil and how it could work. If evil is the privation of good, anytime we ask the question, how can there be evil in the world? The answer is always going to be because there is good in the world. If evil is the corruption of good things, then every time we raise our fist to God and put him on trial, we defeat our own argument. It doesn't make us feel any better when we experience loss, when we experience pain, when we experience sickness and death. But when we're talking about God, he is all good. God is true. And we must be fully submitted to his sovereignty. Paul gives evidence that his audience is not fully submitted to God's sovereignty because of these questions they're asking. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, which is what Augustine is saying, says later, many years later, Paul is literally saying that. He's saying, even though God's own chosen people through their unrighteousness, he still uses that for his glory. They answer back to God, well then how can you hold us accountable for our sin? If our sinfulness, that is the fact that we are evil at times, if that still glorifies you, how can you hold us responsible for our choices? He says, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Verse 6, he says, may it never be. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? How could he be a righteous judge? Verse 7, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Do you see this? Back and forth. I once had a professor one time when I was in Bible college. He, he was talking about this verse and he said when he was a kid, he, a teenager, he and some of his friends, they were reading this. And he said, and we got it into our heads that if we would, if we would sin more, like as teenagers, we were actually bringing God more glory. Because God's glory is always going to prevail, right? Sin increases, grace abounds even more. <laughs> what a bad reading of Romans, right? He said that they soon figured out that was not the case. 
But you do see the reaction of the human heart. When the human heart is, is confronted with a sovereign God to whom all glory and honor are due, saving faith, the heart of someone who has saving faith is not going to respond with rebellion and how could you? Who are you to judge me? No, saving faith says like Job at the end of the book of Job, I close my mouth. I've been, I've been hearing all this stuff about you, but now I see you, Job says. Now I see you for myself and who you really are. And I don't understand all of your ways. I, I don't even on the face of it agree with maybe the way you're doing things in my life, but you are God and you are my God and you are holy and you are righteous and I submit to you. That is the characteristic of saving faith. And there will be times in your life as a Christian where you wonder what in the world God is doing. What is he up to? How can this be part of his plan? And it will cause you to question and it will cause you to wonder how can God be at work? But he is at work and it's all for your glory, for his glory, sorry. And your benefit. And as you're part of the church, if you're a Christian and you're part of the church, God is doing something in his church, but it's all for his glory. He says in verse 8, there were some people slandering the church. He says, why not say as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. He says in verse 8, he says their condemnation is just. Because they rejected the sovereignty of God. These are characteristics from at least this passage of Romans of saving faith. Which is going to lead to where we're going to go next week. And in verse 20 of chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, I want to read those to just whet your appetite for what's coming up next. Paul says, and it's almost as if he's bringing that statement from chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 about the gospel. Remember that one? I hope you memorize those verses where he talks about the gospel. And he says, it is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. It's for everybody. Why? How is everybody encompassing that? He brings that to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, to Gentiles and to Greeks. Or I'm sorry, from, uh, for Jews and for Greeks. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He just kind of wraps this up and says, this is why every single person needs the gospel. This is why the first century Jew who heard, who heard about Jesus and thinks he might be the Messiah and they start attending this group that distinguishes himself and calls themselves the way in the early first century. 
and they're curious. And they want to be part of this group. And it's a, it's a new group. It's a new gathering. And they're, they're bringing all this stuff from Judaism with them. And they still have their trust in the law and things. But they keep hearing these things ab- about Jesus. It's why they need the gospel. This is why they need the gospel. It's why people today that, that grew up in a Christian home or they attend church or they know some things about Jesus or they know some things about the Bible or they own a Bible or, or whatever, but they haven't had a personal relationship with Christ. They've never personally submitted themselves to Him. This is why they need the gospel. This is, why, this is what distinguishes saving faith from being a person of the faith. And it's the same thing today that distinguishes those things as it did in the first century time of the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, that you give us a picture of what the characteristics are, just some of them that we see this morning of a saving faith. And God, that this would, this would not cause us to go into some type of doubt and questioning of our decisions or, or things like that. But Father, it would, just, it would drive us further and, and closer to the cross that we would analyze and test our faith today and that the, the one standard of measure is not our works or the things that we do, even the things that we think we do or don't do in obedience to you and to your son. But God, the one standard of measure would simply be, as your word says, our relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Do we know him? Is his spirit at work in us? Do people around us see the outer workings, the fruit of that inward work? And God, are we growing every day in submission to you to be more submitted to your will into, uh, into our life and for our life. I thank you, God, for the encouragement and the assurance that you give us only through the presence of your Spirit. May we come to depend on you and your grace even more today. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place.